welcome to another season of the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. Very excited to be back, Tim. Another season. Yeah. This one's going to be a little different to some of the past seasons. It'll probably be a little shorter because we're planning to do another season later on in the year. And we're hoping to do that in conjunction with the TAFT conference, which is coming up in South Africa at the end of the year. Very excited to be going to that, provided uh, things still go ahead. Yeah, it's all, everything's in a bit of flux at the moment because of the coronavirus. Hope you're safe and well wherever you are. This epidemic sort of ep- emphasizes the importance of podcasts and electronic communication, doesn't it, Tim? So yeah. We should take advantage of it. Definitely. At times like this, when we can't meet face to face, some conferences I know have already been cancelled. Uh, it's really important that we continue to communicate virtually however we can, and podcasts are a part of that. I reckon we should have uh, virtual reality headsets at conferences. Uh, so everyone around the world's got their own VR headset. <laughs> we all log so, in via Zoom and we walk into virtual rooms, mingle with people, yeah, watch each other's talks. Sounds amazing. Mm, just got to get that written up and uh, we'll be off. Pretty excited about this season, Tim, because we're going to be doing a lot of online interviews rather than face-to-face ones. So yep. using uh, technology available to us and now that we've got it set up. Yeah, excited about this season. And we're starting off today with a 5 in 30 episode. Okay, the first paper we're talking about today is a report on the novel emerging class of highly potent benzimidazole NPS opioids, chemical and in vitro functional characterization of isotonitazine. And that's by Peter Blankart et al. And the article is from Drug Testing and Analysis. So there have obviously been a lot of fentanyl deaths and fentanyl analogue deaths reported in recent years, a lot of them in the USA, uh, some in Europe as well and other places around the world. And... At the end of 2018, China actually cracked down on fentanyls, where a lot of these were coming from, being sourced from. Yep, and it looks like from the graphs that they've produced here, which they got from the EMC DDA, that there's, from about 2016, it went up a little bit, then went back down again to the the number of new opioids coming onto the market or new fentanyls. And now it seems to be quite a low number of new fentanyls coming out, but there's other uh, opioid-related compounds coming out, and this is one of them. Yeah, so fentanyls are still a big problem in terms of volume, but in terms of the number of new, new compounds ones. coming out, there's not as many, but now they have started to come out some of these other ones. So this is, well, not a new compound as such, Pete. No, it's strange. It came out in the... It was developed in the 50s, but it was never really carried... Or 50s or 60s, never really carried through to any cl- clinical trials or anything. I never got to development. But then... Uh, back in the 70s, I think it came back again for a short time. And as a result of that, these compounds ended up on the DEA prohibited lists in some places. So it was a known compound, but it's just been reintroduced. So this shows the kind of misnomer, really, of new psychoactive substances, which is just a catch-all term that we use to describe any drug that's emerging as a, a drug of abuse. But they're not all new. They might be newly... um Applied. Yeah, newly applied or uh, they might have found a new foothold in the drug-using community. Yeah, for example, um, pregabalin. That's a pharmaceutical. It's not necessarily classed as an NPS, but people call it an NPS in some papers because it's newly abused. Yeah, there's not really a consensus on which drugs are included in that framework of NPS and which ones aren't. It's a bit of a loose... Or even if it's new or novel, who cares anyway? Yeah, new or novel. (laughs) Okay, so this is um, Peter Blankart is part of the Belgian Early Warning System for Drugs. And it looks like they uh, do some buys every now and then off the internet and get some new materials that come off. And they 
saw a compound called etonitazine, so E-T-O-nitazine. So they purchased some of that material, but then they did the tests on it. They found out it actually, surprise, surprise, it wasn't actually etonitazine. It was actually this other compound called isotonitazine. Yeah, that's not too unusual that you buy something over the internet and it's not actually what you think it's going to be. Yeah. So then their aim was to characterise this drug chemically and pharmacologically. And they did a lot of a lot of different analyses. He used FTIR, QTOF, GCMS, LCUV, uh, as well as the pharmacological evaluation using some bioassays. Yeah, and actually it's really good from these types of papers to get that mass spectral data that they're talking about, which can then be added to databases, which we've talked about those before, how useful they are for forensic toxicologists to just have the, the fragments, really, the mass and the fragments. Yeah, so, of course, a lot of forensic tox labs... Um, especially when we're looking for low-dose compounds, they're looking at using LCMS. And the main source of NPS data is often from things like GCEI uh, databases, which, of course, aren't much used to someone who's using LCMS. So data that comes out that gives us both gas chromatography mass spec information and LCMS stuff is really handy. Yeah, but of course, we know that for a lot of NPS in particular, where they're very structurally similar, MS data on its own isn't enough to characterize it, you can get a good idea, but you don't necessarily know exactly what it looks like. So using other uh, techniques as well, like FTIR, like NMR, are really important to actually characterize it. And, and because it was a known compound, that could actually buy some of the standard, the authentic material from a known reputable retailer and compare that to the seized material. So I guess the one of the main findings from the paper is that they found that it is actually a strong opioid. I mean, that's the main thing. Some some of these drugs come out and get sold and get used, but they don't really have that much activity and they probably don't take off very much if that's the case. Yeah, they don't get much of a market. But this one's definitely got some effects. So they found it was more potent than hydromorphone, which is which itself is pretty potent. So it's more, more potent than morphine, but probably not quite as potent as fentanyl and definitely not quite as potent as some of the more potent fentanyls that you what, get. Hydromorphone, is that like 10 times more potent than morphine? Uh, something like that? I think it was five times more or something okay. like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's sort of in between morphine, uh, hydromorphone and fentanyl sort of strength, which is still very, very, very dangerous. Yeah, definitely. So they found there was a concentration-dependent response in terms of activity and that it could be antagonized by naloxone as other opioids can as well at the mu opioid receptors. So it's behaving similarly to other opioids there. So through their testing, both um, GC, LC, and also NMR, they found that it was very high purity material. So it compared very well to the uh, reference material that they purchased. Yeah, and through the activity studies as well, which um, showed a similar concentration response curve to the actual reference standard. So that again demonstrated that it was quite pure. So the difference between isotonitazine and the one that it was sold as, etonitazine, is only a methyl group or something like that. So I'm not quite sure why the manufacturers decided to sell it as um, etonitazine and not isonitazine, but um, yeah, who knows what unless they, they didn't know. Well, they're manufacturing some pretty high-purity stuff, so it sounds like they know what they're doing. Hmm. So potentially this could be the start of a new wave of these types of compounds coming out. Yeah, exactly like the fentanyls. There could be a, a ginormous amount of different structures coming through add a chlorine here or a fluorine there or replace a methyl group with something else. Some of them may not even be active because, you know, they probably haven't got facilities to test them them unless they advertise them on the internet and get the Blankart group to assess them for them. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if there'll be the potential as they start coming out. I mean, obviously, people will 
toxicologists will want to add them to their databases to make sure that they're monitoring for them or else we won't even know if they're showing up. I wonder if there'll be the potential for looking at common fragments or metabolites like we've done with the fentanyls. Yeah, that's a good point. So fentanyls have, depending on whereabouts, the different derivatives, what part of the molecule the derivatives put on, a lot of them have very similar mass specs. So the, the parent line might be different, but the fragments might be similar. So there's a lot of potential here to do the same sort of assessment for these compounds too, isn't there? If this really highlights how important it is to keep an eye on the literature because when papers come out like this, it's a good idea to put that new drug on your list of things that you want to purchase a standard of or add to your database. I mean, not every lab can purchase every new thing that comes out. Yeah. That can be expensive and logistically difficult to manage all those things and to incorporate them into your method as well. Sometimes that's a, quite a task depending on what kind of method you're using. It's not just the literature as well. It's um, I first heard about this through Twitter because I follow Peter Blankhart and Christoph Stove on Twitter and lo and behold, they back in oh, last few months of last year, they mentioned that they found a new opioid coming through their system and they're going to release a paper shortly about it. It's called isotonitazine. So that really perked everyone's attention up. And the American group MPS Discovery um, also said that they'd been detecting it in some of their sample work and very shortly after there was a paper come out from those from that group, from Kratulski et al, announced that they'd been detecting isotonitazine in casework. So, yeah, so social media is not just a cesspit of evil. It can also be useful. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on who you follow. Sure. Yeah. Okay, the next paper is by Vera Reinstadler et al, and it's titled a validated workflow for drug detection in oral fluid by non-targeted liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry, and that's in analytical and bioanalytical chemistry. So we haven't talked a lot about oral fluid on the podcast so far, but it's being widely used to test in all sorts of areas, drugs and driving, workplaces. Prisons, all and, sorts of places. Yep, and here they've developed a method. So this, this paper is mainly about the method, but the, peop- the oral fluid samples are coming from opiate addicts in psychiatric hospitals and some outpatients in opioid maintenance therapy. So what drugs are they looking for here, Tim? Well, they're looking for a whole bunch of different drugs, actually. So this is a, they're describing the title as a non-targeted method. And I guess this raises a question, Pete, about the use of these terms, targeted and non-targeted methods. You might think of a targeted method as being a triple quadrupole method, for example, where you put the information for certain drugs in there and then they're the only things that you're going to see. Whereas in this case, it's more like a non-targeted acquisition. So they're acquiring all sorts of uh, information about what's in the sample, but it's still a targeted processing method, if you like. Yeah, so it's more like a, a post-extraction is a targeted analysis. So they're not they're acquiring everything under a very general circumstances so they can detect virtually every, any compound that ionizes and fragments, but the targeted part is actually in their data analysis. Otherwise, they'd be spending hours and hours per sample looking for every single drug that exists. Yeah, a non-targeted acquisition with a non-targeted processing is... That that might be getting more into sort of metabolomics and things like that. Yeah. So they're using a a commercially available library which has over 1,700 compounds and each of them is there at multiple collision energies as well. I think about 10 collision energies per entry. It's a pretty good library for this particular instrument. I'm not quite sure if you can use it for other instruments. You may be able to. So they're using the instrument software to filter out positives based on library matching. They do mention that visual inspection of those presumptive IDs 
is still necessary by an expert because libraries just aren't perfect. Sometimes they're going to give a pretty good match for something that is just, you look at it and you think, why on earth did it give it a match of 70 or 80? It doesn't make any sense. But It doesn't hold any intelligence or anything. It's just an algorithm that says whether it's there or not and gives you a score. Um, there's probably ways you can fine-tune it to give you a more likely hit, but we still have to rely on experts to ascertain whether something's positive or not, don't we? Yeah, but actually that's what we really need is software which can not just assess based on an algorithm you know, whether something's positive or not, but software that learns about whether a hit is true or not and then it can make corrections to itself. You, you're smiling at me, Pete. You're thinking... I don't want anything that thinks it's that clever. <laughs> Alan Strata, though, in the recent TF Bulletin was talking about artificial intelligence, and he reckons that artificial intelligence is not going to replace toxicologists, but toxicologists who use artificial intelligence or understand it will replace toxicologists who don't. So that's an interesting yeah, concept. I, I, Maybe a better start learning. I 100% agree with that. So when they were looking at matrix effects, they evaluated the total line chromatogram just to see what matrix components were coming out, and they saw a lot of stuff and a lot of multiply charged molecules, which they suggest might be peptides. This is my experience as well. When we've developed oral fluid methods, it's a good idea to look at the total ion chromatogram when you're just of a blank sample before mm. you really go too far with your method development. Because if let's say you're developing a method on a triple quadrupole, even you might want to run that on a full scan instrument just to see what's there or else you'll never see it, but it could cause problems in your analysis but if you run it on a, a QTOF or something and you see that there's just these huge peaks everywhere, it might mean you need a different uh, extraction technique or even just a different uh, eluting solvent or something like that. Or a chromatography method that moves your specific compounds away from the big lump in the TIC. So because they're looking at so many different drugs here, they've plotted the lipophilicity of the drug against the limit of identification because there there is some relationship there, some at either extreme, which are either really lipophilic or really hydrophilic, were not detected. Like, I mean, THC, for example, THC is a very lipophilic drug, and that is just a pain to analyze. That's right. It doesn't ionize very well. Well, if it might ionize okay, but then it fragments into so many little bits that it's hard to get sensitivity, and then it comes out often late in your chromatogram, so it collutes with all sorts of other rubbish coming off your column. Yeah, and even in the extraction, you've got to make allowances for that THC, which is so lipophilic, to try and get it out, but that might mean you have to compromise on some other things. But in most uh, analyses like this, THC is one of the most important compounds, so you can't just ignore it. You've, you've got to have it in there, or you've got to have a separate method just to do THC and maybe a couple of other things, but that's not very efficient, so... A lot of methods like this, you'll see THCs in there. It doesn't work that well or as well as other compounds. But then if you have a deuterated THC, it probably doesn't really matter that much. So this paper is sort of, again, re-demonstrating proof of concept that you can use a pretty non-targeted LCMS high-res mass spec acquisition method and then use a library to detect these drugs. Yeah, but they did have a problem with a couple of particular drugs, duloxetine and fluoxetine, which just don't produce a lot of ions at the collision energy that they were using mm. anyway. And in order to get them to confirm well based on the library match, so this is the automated software match, they would have had to lower their collision energy significantly. They're very fragile molecules, aren't they? So they're fragmented very often in the source, so maybe they're not even getting through to the detector in any of the fragmentation energies, I'm not sure. 
So they mentioned that the false negative rate was 0%. Good. Yeah, that's that's very good. But it's only when they're talking about whether the software was able to find matches for the MSMS that exist. That 0% is a means it's always identified a drug if it's detected by MSMS. Yes, but there were some examples where it didn't generate MSMS. Ah. And this is the limitation of data-dependent analysis where you're, the instrument's monitoring what comes out in the MS and deciding what to fragment, but it can only fragment a few things. It's not fragmenting every iron that comes out there. So some they had where the MS wasn't produced, where the MSMS wasn't produced, and obviously it's not going to identify them in that case. So in most of these data-dependent acquisition methods, you can tell the instrument that if you see a particular iron, always do MSMS on it. But when you're looking at a very wide range of compounds, like 1,700 compounds, it probably is a bit impractical to do that because then there's a list of 1,700 compounds that the mass spec has to decide whether or not to do fragmentation for. Yeah, that's when it becomes really difficult. There is really a limit, a practical limit to how many you can have in that list. But on average, they they say they're getting 2,000 MSMS produced per run. Oh, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. So when you're using data-dependent analysis, that's also another reason to have a matrix that's pretty well cleaned up because otherwise you're going to have a lot more compounds coming out all the time and it's going to make it more likely that the instrument will acquire MSMS of one of those co-eluding interferences rather than the compound that you're actually interested in. All right, that's enough on that one. Let's go to the next paper, which is by Lisa Benaglia. It's in Forensic Science International and it's titled Testing Wastewater from a Music Festival in Switzerland to Assess Illicit Drug Use. So wastewater has been used around the world in a lot of circumstances. This one here is specifically looking at wastewater effluent taken from a music festival as a way to measure uh, drugs of abuse that were taken there. Yeah, but it's also been applied to just measuring drug use in the general population in a lot of different cities. Yeah, so there's, I think there's ongoing programs around the world looking at continually monitoring sewage to see what sort of drugs people are taking, whether there's a change in drug use patterns over time. In those large-scale things... I don't think it's been shown to be that effective at monitoring, like NPS, for example. Is is that right? Uh, well, it, it's, it's more about drug loads of the traditional drugs. So yes, NPS is obviously much lower frequency, so it's much harder to detect. But you know, depending on how accurate instrumentation is and how much sewage you want to load into your instrument to detect <laughs> something, you can probably de- you can detect these compounds at a music festival where where you'd think, well, some music festivals have a dedicated sewage system, so it may be. Uh, like portaloos, portable um, toilet facilities, mm. that's a little bit easier to test than I think. Raw sewage that's going coming from industrial areas, we've got detergents, you've got lots of other stuff in there that's going to dilute your NPS. It's interestingly in this paper that's what they did have. They, it was sort of a combined uh, effluent from the music festival, but also from the local town, which is a small town. It's not a large city or anything, um, but so they did have to collect some background samples to see what the normal drug use was in the town and then see how it spiked during the festival periods. Yeah, and they compared the two periods. And interestingly, I think they found there was little difference in benzolecanine before and after the festival. So this festival, they were getting about 50,000 people per day. That's a lot of people. And it's funny, like, the logistical issues that you face sometimes in doing research, they set up all their equipment. So they did this over a couple of years. They set up all their equipment to monitor the wastewater and collect it and all that sort of stuff. But they had a storm one day and it just knocked out their equipment, it sounds like. And so they they couldn't get any data for that day. 
These these are the kind of logistical things when you face when you're outside in the environment as opposed to just cooped up in a laboratory, which That's is right. mostly where we are. So they're looking at a bunch of different traditional drugs and some new drugs. They had some cathinones in there as well, but mainly the usual suspects. So how do these drugs get into sewage, I think, is what people often ask. And obviously, it's not from people flushing. It may be from people uh, flushing down their stash. That could be part of it. Yeah. But basically, everything that you consume, every drug you consume, is excreted in some form into your urine. So it's a pretty comprehensive way to detect drugs that are being used by the community. But some drugs are more difficult to detect than others. So, for example, THC. So we're talking about urinary metabolites. So THC will be metabolized to THC acid. You don't generally detect a lot of THC in urine. So they're looking for THC acid. But a problem with that is it's quite non-polar and it sticks to a lot of other material in the sewage matrix. So some drugs are very difficult to extract from sewage. And I think THC might be one of them. Yeah, and they had problems with that uh, in this one. And that made... So mainly their, their point of this paper was to assess drug trends and things like that over this couple of year period. And they're comparing it to another festival in Australia, actually, as well, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute. But THC acid, the method that they were using, the analytical method, just didn't work very well at all. The extraction was only about 20% efficiency in wastewater. There were large matrix effects, and there seemed to be poor accuracy. So those THC results that they're talking about here, and they mentioned this in the paper, you know, take that with a grain of salt because the method just wasn't that Good. And, and it's a hard one, as you say. It's a pretty complex area, this wastewater testing. Do you wonder if maybe we might get an expert in to talk about it one day? Just yeah, that, that'll probably be good. It's a growing area as well. Yeah, and labs, a lot of forensic labs have the facility to do this sort of testing, so they might want to get into it. So one of the drugs that they didn't find a lot of during the festival was heroin or MAM. They're monitoring monoacetyl morphine because that's what you'll see in the urine. Which makes sense. You wouldn't think that heroin's going to be one that's consumed a lot at festivals because that kind of knocks you out. Whereas really what people want is to be, you know, full of energy and things when they're at a music festival. And so the stimulants that they found were MDMA and amphetamine, interestingly. Yeah, you say interestingly because here in Australia, we see a lot of methamphetamine, not a lot of amphetamine. Yeah, and I think that actually might have confused their results a little bit when they're talking about the Australian study because they talk about amphetamine being detected in the Australian study as well, but that's almost exclusively going to be a metabolite of meth, isn't it? Yeah, there's hardly any amphetamine taken on its own in Australia. It's almost all methamphetamine. Illicitly, anyway. Illicitly, yeah. So they've measured over two different years here, and so one thing, they mentioned that they don't really know what the variation is from year to year, so it's hard to get trends just from two years, but these are the kinds of studies where you set them up and you hope that you'll be able to keep going over a long period of time and get some really useful data. And the overall use they found was similar both years anyway. Lots of cannabis, not a lot of meth, not a lot of heroin. And MDMA was present. And so the reason why they compared it to the Australian one was because they wanted to show that wastewater testing could be possibly used internationally across different studies between different groups because there are very few studies in terms of wastewater festivals. And I think the Australian one was about the only one around at the time. And so the, what they've noticed in the comparison is maybe kind of what you'd expect in terms of the drugs used that fits with drug prevalence in those two countries. They do note with the THC, I mean, we were talking about that before, about the difficulty in the analysis. They mentioned that they found more THC in the Swiss study, even though 
they reference a UN report saying that Australia actually has a higher consumption of cannabis in young people than Switzerland, but that might just be due to the analytical difficulties of it. Yeah, it's hard to interpret that, isn't it? And interestingly, they use different... Um, so when we're talking about this wastewater analysis, they usually uh, have to normalise the concentration or the amount of drug that's in the wastewater to the number of inhabitants or the number of people contributing to the sewage catchment. So they call that the per capita loads, and they, then they express it as milligrams of drug taken per day per 1,000 inhabitants. So I think the way that they normalised it in this study was to use ammonia, and there's other there's different ways of doing it. And I think in the, uh, the Australian study, they actually used the number of people who were at the festival to sort of normalise it. But surprisingly, they got similar results for MDMA, which is interesting. Mm. So at least there's some correlation there. And because... This is a relatively new thing, monitoring wastewater at festivals. Like, you know, within the last decade or so, it's been becoming more common. More people are doing it. All of these papers are really not just looking at the trends in drug use. They're also trying to sort of suggest models for how this can actually be done. What's the best way to do it? And yeah. it's not. there's not complete consensus at the moment between different um, studies, different groups around the world. No, there's been efforts using caffeine, for example, as a marker. Uh, various fecal sterols as markers, and more recently a group's been talking about using neurotransmitter uh, metabolites as markers to work out how many people were in the catchment. Okay, so the next article we're talking about is uh, one by Anacelia Munos-Munos. It's a characterization of an amphetamine inference from gabapentin in an LCHRMS method, and this paper was published in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. This is a very... Um niche paper i guess talking about a very specific technical issue this is the kind of paper i love but yeah, yeah. talking about a very specific issue when it comes to analyzing drugs by liquid chromatography mass spectrometry so they were developing a method for about 47 analytes and uh, during the development stage and analyzing some real samples they noticed that they were getting some false positives for amphetamine and then they had a look back and tried to work out where these false positives were coming from and they worked out it's actually coming it was only present in samples that had gabapentin in them, which is a little bit unusual because gabapentin's got nowhere near the same mass as amphetamine, so then they had a bit of a closer look at it. So they're doing their analysis on a Q-exactive, which is a very high-resolution mass spectrometer. and So they're doing a full-scan spectrum and then uh, doing MSMS of ions within that spectrum to get fragmentation data. They're using an inclusion list, so I think that means, as we discussed a bit earlier, where we have... Uh, a list of compounds which they will always have MSMS data required for, which is a good way to go, I think. And they're also looking to have... A, so for the identification, they're not necessarily looking at iron ratios, but they do want to have at least two MSMS fragment ions present at the correct accurate mass. So despite that, we're still getting an interference. So let's try and work out how that happened. Yeah, because false positives are bad, right? Bad news. Very you, bad. You definitely don't want to get a false positive. That's just about the worst thing you can do. And... You obviously do a lot of selectivity studies when you do your validation, and they did here, and that's how they discovered it. So that was good. They were doing their validation well. You probably can't ever reduce the risk of false positives to zero, but uh, you've just got to try and do your due diligence when it comes to setting up your methods. Exactly right. So where is this coming from? So I'm not going to talk about uh, decimal points here because it just gets too complicated. So... In terms of the mass of gabapentin, it's got a mass of 172 as the M plus H in positive mode. And what they were finding was they're getting a very tiny 136 peak, which is coincidentally exactly the same mass as amphetamine. 
And where they're working that out, where that came from, was that the gabapentin is actually fragmenting in the source, and it's losing two water molecules and ending up with a 136 mass. And that's happening even before it gets to the collision cell. And unfortunately, the retention time of gabapentin and of amphetamine are very, very similar. So even though that gabapentin fragment is only a minor fragment that you're getting in the source, because gabapentin is such a high-dose drug, it can be there at huge concentrations. And so that minor thing can still give a false positive result that's above your limit of detection for amphetamine. And so in such high concentrations that sometimes the peak was totally distorted. Yeah, but I mean, you say totally distorted. Looking at the chromatographic peaks here where you've got it, it's so this supposed amphetamine, which is really an interference, it's a big peak and it's definitely got a shoulder on it. But sometimes if you've got a, a really big peak, it'll look a bit distorted anyway, even if it yeah. is the drug that you're looking for. So that's the kind of thing I think could be pretty easily overlooked by an analyst in a laboratory. And that sort of um, peak overloading is why sometimes people don't necessarily like going with the narrow bore columns, like say 2.1 millimeter, millimeter column, because if you do get a large concentration of drug, you end up changing the chromatography of, a, of that particular run because it, there's so much stuff there that it actually starts to act as a pseudo-phase or something. One, yeah. One rep told me once. Yeah, no, I, th- I sure think that's, true. that sounds about right. <laughs> one, one problem that we have in forensic toxicology is we're looking for both really high concentrations and really low concentration drugs in the same run. And we're looking for so many, we really want to split them up chromatographically. So you want really good um, resolution on your column, but sometimes that doesn't. it's a balance between that and getting higher loading capacity. Yeah, some people like to use a bit wider columns. One thing that is different about these two things is the relative iron ratio. So if you've got a sample with very high gabapentin in it and it's giving this 136.1123 iron, which is the same as amphetamine M plus H, you are still getting the exact mass, the, the exact correct masses for the fragment ions of 91 and 119. But their relative ratios is really quite different. But because they're just using retention time and the presence of those two ions, it does come up as a as a as a positive. So in order to determine whether it really is amphetamine or not, they have to really look at the ion ratios. So in order to discriminate and solve this problem, they ended up using the library search software, which was able to discriminate between the two quite easily. Yeah, and so they say they added that spectrum of that interference to the library as an interference and got it to identify it. They do mention another paper in here by Shugarts where they they found a similar thing where gabapentin co-alluded with, um, with their amphetamine, but they didn't get the same problem because um, what their problem was that it was basically swamping their amphetamine, so they got really low recovery. So how could they solve that problem? Well, the problem is with the particular instrumentation they're using, they're unable to reduce the energy that that ion gets at the ionization stage, so it they can't get rid of the in-source fragmentation. And I don't know why that is, and I don't know how these particular instruments are set up. So the only way they could do it was through the library matching method. And so they do suggest um, sort of at the end that they're still looking around for another column that might be better, it might resolve them, might have a a different loading capacity and so on. Yeah, it's always an option, but it's probably going to stuff something else up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's always a compromise. Anytime you've got a method that looks at a lot of different compounds. All right, the next paper we're going to talk about is from Clinical Toxicology, 
It's by Shane Dark and it's titled Characteristics and Circumstances of Death Related to Gamma Hydroxybutyrate. So they, in Australia, there's a national coronial information system. So what's supposed to happen is every state sends in their pathology reports and their post-mortem toxicology reports all into the same source. And um, then you're able to mine that data for research projects such as this or papers such as this. So they've accessed that database and pulled out as many GHB cases as they could find. They included also um, the metabolic precursors of GHB, so um, gamma-hydroxybutyrolactam, GBL, and uh, 1,4-butanediol as well in their searching. But because of the problem with GHB being... Um, an endogenous compound, so it's naturally occurring in your body and can also be formed post-mortem in, uh, in the decomposition process. Uh, they've only reported cases here in which uh, the case notes indicate that GHB use was confirmed. So that might be through police reports or things found at the scene, Yeah, et they've taken a very conservative approach in this one to whether GHB was there or not. They've, they've really had to have that confirming evidence. And even in some cases... GHB wasn't actually detected in the blood, but because they had that confirming evidence that they, there was a really strong suspicion that it was GHB that was taken, they've yeah. they've labelled it as a GHB death. But typical concentrations that you might find and what they found here were like in excess of 100 milligrams per litre. It's generally where someone's died of it. Not always, but often where someone's died of it, you'll find high concentrations. Yeah, And that's actually one of the ways that some people recommend to to tell in a post-mortem case especially whether someone has taken GHB or whether it's just post-mortem production is by the concentration. Maybe you have a cutoff of, you know, it's got to be greater than 20, 30, 50. I mean, it's just a little bit arbitrary, Some isn't number. it? Well, yeah. GHB has been found in post-mortem cases up to, you know, hundreds, hundreds. of milligrams per litre. So there's no strict cutoff. And some people actually say you, you shouldn't even use a cutoff. You should just look at that particular case, look at the circumstances, see whether there's any supporting evidence and then try and work it out that way, try and interpret it based on that contextual information rather than just relying on a number. But if you're have, if you screening for GHB in post-mortem cases, you've got to have some kind of cutoff, right? I mean, you can't... It would be misleading to report concentrations of five mg per litre in, in all of your cases. It's probably going to be in all of your cases. So you have to... You definitely have to go above the in-life endogenous concentration, but we still don't know what the post-mortem endogenous concentration is. So the records they looked at span from uh, year 2000 to 2019. So that's right up until virtually a couple of months ago from when we, when the paper was published, which is interesting, isn't it? Because I don't know if all the 2019 cases will be in. So there may be some cases more recently that haven't actually got to the database yet. Yeah, and they mentioned that in there that they are just looking at closed cases. So these aren't these aren't even just cases where the report has been issued, but cases which are actually closed now. Yeah. And they found 74 cases, which again, it might be an underestimate because they were quite conservative in their approach of working out what was a GHB death. Because really here, they're not trying to work out how many GHB deaths there have been, they're trying to work out what are the ways in which GHB death occurs when it occurs. So they end up saying that the typical case was a young male who swallowed GHB and used it with other substances. Yeah, because it's usually taken orally. And just like with most other illicit drugs, really, GHB is not unusual in that sense that it's taken with other drugs a lot of the time. Yeah. Most illicit drugs are. And most deaths they found 
were as a result of an accidental overdose and most at home as well. So with GHB, the way that people die is essentially by respiratory depression, kind of like with an opioid. And so if there's intervention, a lot of these deaths could have been prevented, but because they're at home, maybe some of them are on their own or they just weren't able to get help quickly enough. And they even say from the records that... um in some of these cases, death could have been presented by, prevented by simply putting the person into the recovery position before yeah. they vomited and aspirated the contents of their or into their lungs. Yeah, such a simple thing, isn't it? But um, obviously, if they're taking it at home on their own, there's no help available. And they also mention about underlying medical conditions. I mean, this is a huge thing with drugs. You know, this this is a topical with the coronavirus going around at the moment. The people who are the most susceptible to a virus are the people who already have underlying health conditions and it's the same with a lot of drugs if you've already got a condition and then you take a drug that exacerbates that condition well that's going to be much more risky for you so we did mention a minute ago that they look for 1,4-butane diol and um, gbl so both of those are metabolic precursors to ghb so uh, 1,4-butane diols i think it's an industrial solvent that you can use for cleaning and things like that and if you've got a permit you can import it and you can buy liters and liters of it and the same with uh, gbl uh, so GBL is the, the, the lactone, so that just gets hydrolyzed in your stomach to GHB uh, quite rapidly. But 1,4-butane diol is a bit different because it actually have to, has to get metabolized by the liver enzymes into GHB. So it's the same enzymes that are doing that conversion are also doing alcohol conversion. So just having a single drink basically overloads those enzymes. And if you're taking GHB and a drink of alcohol, apparently what happens is it delays the metabolism of 1,4-butane diol into GHB. So you can end up with um, some people might start overloading because they think they're getting no effect, but actually it could be just because they've got a little bit of alcohol on board. So that's another threat that 1,4-butane diol poses. Mm. All right, that's enough, I think, Pete, on those papers. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to get back into it again and uh, hopefully have a nice season. If you want to contact us, you can email us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. Any complaints can go to Tim Scott. You're always asking for complaints, aren't you? I don't know where you think these complaints are coming from. All the feedback we've had is very good. So keep listening. Another episode out next week. Thanks for listening. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.